thank you all so much for uh, your singing along, for your generosity, um, and most of all, for your commitment and faithfulness to God's house and being here this morning. I hope you have a Bible. If you do, we're going to be in Genesis 37 this morning. We'll begin reading there in just a little bit. Um, uh, but uh, just to kind of set up the day, um, we're ending one series and beginning a new conversation. So it kind of dovetails nicely. Um, I believe, hopefully, that'll all um, be true when this is over with. Uh, today marks the beginning of Advent. Advent is a season of worship that builds toward Christmas. Most of us know this, but if you aren't uh, aware or you aren't familiar, Advent... Um, um, is a word that just means arrival. Um, it's uh, especially the arrival of someone notable, someone long awaited, someone that's been long expected. Um, and, and every year we frame our services, our messages, and our gatherings around this theme of waiting, uh, this idea of expectation, this idea of anticipation, uh, because we are putting ourselves in the shoes of those who went before us, who waited hundreds, even thousands of years on God to send Messiah. The Bible tells this story. This is the, the, if someone asks you, what's the Bible all about? Of course, it's individual books, but the cohesive message is this story, and especially the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, um, generations waited and yearned patiently for the day that salvation would come. And whereas they didn't know when it was going to come, and they didn't know the day or the details, um, we know the story, and we love that story, don't we? We cherish it, we sing about it, we rejoice around it, and where, when God became one of us to save us from sin. So the idea of Advent, um, it's, we know that it's not waiting for the arrival, we celebrate that the arrival came all those years ago. Jesus came to, came to earth, God in a body to bring us salvation, and of course, um, he rose again and ascended to heaven, but his mission is not complete. His mission is not over. While we as the church exist to bring glory to God and to grow the, the family of God, we do wait on his return. So in a sense, Advent, this season of remembering the original wait on his first coming, but also this season where we anticipate his second coming. We wait on him to finish what he started. We know that Jesus came first to reveal himself, to reconcile all to God, to show the church how to spread this message, but he will come again to restore all of creation and raise up the dead to life. We know that his second coming is imminent because his first coming and all that came along with it has dominated the conversation for 2,000 years. The entire history of the world has been framed and shaped by his arrival all those years Ago. So, as we enter into this season of Advent, we celebrate his first coming, but we also anticipate his second coming. As we said years ago, Christmas has a sequel, and one day we'll get to see that movie. Maybe we'll get to see it and realize it in person or live and be there when it all begins to happen if we don't pass on before. But now there's something in us that often hears about the Lord's return and all the rhetoric that comes along with it. And our first response, in our gut response, isn't anticipation at all. If we're being honest, there's something in us that often dreads that conversation, that worries about what that conversation may mean and the ramifications of it. There may be a part of us that's even disinterested in it or just doesn't see the whole, you know, to do about it. Not that we don't love the Lord and not that we don't believe he has our best in mind. But it's just the unknown that is often too much for our little brains to understand and entertain. And we just retreat from it as a result. 
And maybe even as believers, we worry, and, and this may sound funny, but it's true for a lot of us, even as believers, we wonder and we worry if the Lord's return will be for our good or for our best. And, and, and here's why Christmas is the perfect season to refocus our minds and to focus our minds on his return, because his first coming forever defines his feelings toward us. And I want that to be very clear. I hope that we can communicate that very clearly over the next month. The first coming of Christ, the fact that he came as such a pure baby in a manger, right? The fact that Jesus came in that way, in that fashion, the incarnation, and of course, the work that he would do for us on the cross, his first coming forever defines his feelings toward us. We know the story. God did not send his son to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We know John 3.16, but John 3.17 is just as important. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, as clear as it can be stated, but something we often forget and we wonder if it's actually the case. So from this day forward, it could not be, it could not be confused and it should not be misunderstood how God feels about us or what God's thoughts are towards and for us. Because on Christmas Day, God moved near to those who had been drawn away by sin or had drew away because of sin. Therefore, Christmas is the season that we remember. We remember how God so loved the world, how he lowered himself so that he might reach a fallen creation. That is what Christmas is all about. So if this is the approach God took 2,000 years ago, whenever he returns, we can trust that his approach will be in that same spirit, that all of us who have heard this message and embraced its teaching will see the fulfillment of what Jesus began so many years ago, what he's begun in our own hearts, his mission to reverse the curse of Adam, to undo the fall of man. Speaking of which, we have been studying all about the fall of man over the past few weeks. We've uh, been getting to know some of the heroes of our faith, which as we found out, were not very heroic at all, were they? In, in many cases, they were the most selfish, inconsiderate, and outright sinful of their generation. We've seen men and women to whom God made amazing, reassuring promises so blatantly and seemingly confuse, uh, confuse his promises and cluelessly disobey him and outright rebel against him. But there's an undercurrent that we haven't talked about until now. We've seen in the lives of Noah and Abraham and Jacob and all those around them, even though they were recipients of such great promises, they were so very afraid all the time of everything. And who could blame them? The world they lived in was a pretty messed up place and there was not much you could depend on in the ancient world. So much was fleeting and each day could be your last. But what makes, what makes these that we've studied so unique is that God had chosen to reveal himself to them and clue them in on a much larger plan. He promised to bless them, and he did this hand over fist. But what's striking, and what we get the picture of throughout their stories is that they grew more nervous as God made more promises of them. And it doesn't make sense why this happened, but when we get in their shoes, I think we can understand you get the sense that they thought their faith was held together by shoestrings and bubble gum. Like at any moment, something could go horribly wrong. And the more God made promises to them, the more they worried and wondered if it could be actually true, if things would actually happen as God said they would. The more God revealed himself, the more they felt unsure in themselves 
And maybe you've had that experience before. God continues to be good, but you wonder, when's it all going to kind of blow up? When's it all going to shatter? When's it all going to be just a dream? The more God raised the stakes and the more he put his own name on the line, it's like his people actually grew more concerned over things working out or not. Now, why do you think that is? Maybe it's the same reason why we suffer from similar fears. Maybe it suggests that the way we relate to God, the essence of our relationship with God, is lacking in a foundational sense. Maybe it suggests that we so often approach God and relate to Him as if we are equals, as if we bear as much of the burden as He does, as if we bear as much of the responsibility in keeping step with Him as He does with us. And maybe that's why we're so overwhelmed by fear, because the very notion of that, the very thought of that is crippling and debilitating for us. Because if anyone knows how our, our own shortcomings, and if anyone knows our own weaknesses, it's us, isn't it? And when we feel like that something is, is on us, something's dependent on us, we get very overwhelmed very easily. And the ancients believed that they had as much responsibility as God did, and they wondered how in the world could this work out. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you were exposed like you've been put, your, you're put in a situation that others might seem to believe you can do it, or you might even believe you should be able to do it, but you yourself know that you just aren't up to it. You know this happened to me, this happens to me every time I take a next step in my ministry journey. When I first started college, when I first started graduate studies, it, it still happens every Tuesday or Wednesday when I begin to really focus on the next Sunday's message. It happens to me when a new challenge in ministry comes or a situation I've never faced before. I often feel completely out of my league as if I'm treading water. And you know how this is. You can only brute force your way for so long. You can only put on a front for so long. At some point, I had to realize, okay, God, you're my creator. You're my father. You're the one who called me and purposed me. You got me into this, and I'm going to have to rely on more of you than myself because you're the one that started this, and you'll be here after I'm gone. But therein I realize and confess that I'm totally beholden and dependent on the mercy and grace of God, that I don't bear an equal share with God. God bears a greater responsibility, that he gladly takes on. Yes, I bear a responsibility to react and respond to the goodness he shows me, but if I ever and if we ever elevate ourselves from the place of recipient to participant, and what I mean by that is this, if we ever see ourselves as someone who hasn't just received from God, but as someone who is cooperating with God and is equally a part of the equation to save ourselves and get us somewhere in life, if we ever elevate ourselves from a recipient of God's grace to a participant, we will set ourselves up for vulnerability and disability. Because here's why. We are not equals with God by no means. You, you see, the ancient world misunderstood uh, what we have come to know. They understood religion as these two halves making equal contributions. And the really, they put more emphasis on the individual because they, they understood the gods or God as this ruthless and angry brood. And they thought it was on them to appease and appeal to him and win over his favor. 
But what have we learned in the origin story of our faith? What has God made so very clear in his dealings with the people like Noah and Abraham and Jacob? (laughs) That that is not the God that we serve. Some of the verses we've referenced in Romans captures what God has revealed to us through Genesis. Yes, as Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but all can be and are justified by his grace through his redemption. So what do we learn in that, very, that initial message about Noah? Yes, all of creation is fallen and broken, but all of creation have an equal opportunity to receive the grace and the redemption that is free through Jesus Christ. It's not on us to fix ourselves. God took it on himself to redeem every one of us. And even though we looked at the story of Abraham, that every time God made a promise to him, it's like he kept on sinning and made a bigger mess. But what did we learn through Abraham's life? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It didn't make sense, did it? And we studied the life of Jacob, where Jacob continually run from God, was far away from God. But when he finally surrendered, what did he realize? That where he surrendered, God's mercy was there for him. To send home the message that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And it's by the mercy of God that men like Noah and Abraham and Jacob were included in God's story. And what did we conclude throughout the last couple of weeks? That God chose the weakest to show his power. He picked the least to reveal his greatness. He embraced the messiest to emphasize his mercy. So if we ever find ourselves afraid that we're going to fall and fail on our end of the deal, which of course we will if we haven't already. This isn't an unconditional relationship. God's relationship with people is rooted in an unconditional covenant for us and to us. He says to us, like he said to Abraham, do not be afraid. He says to us, like he said to Jacob, I will be with you. I will never forsake you. If we ever forget this though, If we ever suppose that God is a gotcha kind of God, we will be driven by fear and we will be afraid that his coming towards us is not good, but actually our doom. If we ever begin to misunderstand just how great and awesome and merciful our God is, we will come under control of insecurity and fear and always be tempted to establish our own righteousness before God worried that we somehow haven't measured up. Here's what will happen. We'll begin living two or three different lives. We'll try to appear to be one thing, but when no one's looking, we'll let our guards down. We'll be so exhausted from faking it in the light, we'll drift even lower in the dark. And all the while, we'll become indebted with guilt and secrets that we will feel as if God is in the opposite direction of us, as if we walked too far away. So many of us live at that place, don't we? Maybe you have, maybe in your, your history, you, this is your story. We try to live for God, but we do so on the wrong terms, and we're miserable because of it, aren't we? If you could summarize kind of what we are like, we're, we're like cowardly lions. That we have an identity that says we should be confident, but we're dominated by some insecurity that nobody else can see, but it rule, rules our lives, doesn't it? Now, if this describes you, I think if we're being honest, it probably describes all of us at some point. But today's message is just for you. And if anyone, it's just for me. So I'll take this one for myself. But I think someone else might can relate to me today. 
Our last character study in the first volume of Fallen, because there's plenty more stories to tell, our last character study is about Judah. Now, Judah, not much is known about Judah. We don't really think about him as being a main character, but he is pretty important. Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Judah may be the most famous of his brothers as he is mentioned so much. Not many stories, but his name is mentioned because we know the tribe of Judah that came from Judah. The tribe of Judah is the one that David was born into, the one that God promised the Messiah he would send to. Of course, Jesus is of the tribe and lineage of David, of the tribe of Judah. So God picked Judah to be the next in line to receive his exclusive favor. From Noah to Abraham to Jacob, now to Judah. God blessed Judah as the chosen one. He is remembered as the cream of the crop. But if you've been paying attention, you can probably see this coming. Judah's selection once again proves that God's grace cannot be exhausted. His mercy endures forever because Judah did not meet did not make it into this sacred elite category because he deserved it. Of course he didn't, if you've been paying attention. Out of the 12, Judah was the least qualified, but God chose to start his redemption story with those who proved most in need, and if there was anybody that was in desperate need of redemption, it was the bankrupt and utterly morally unqualified Judah. Yet as we dig deeper, we'll discover that Judah was a lot like us. He was no different than any of us. We often try to measure up, much like Judah will try to, only to expose how far we've fallen from God. And in his efforts to prove himself righteous, a fraud and a coward is revealed. But maybe that's the point of the story. To uncover what we are tempted to cover up. To show us once again that we have nothing to hide from God, God knows what he's getting into, and still he so passionately wants to get to us. Now we're first introduced to Judah through the lens of his brother, the more famous and much more wholesome Joseph. Now, Here's the thing about the story that we're just going to get a brief snapshot today. So I encourage you to read the last 13 um, or or so chapters of Genesis. While we're tempted to think that the remainder of Genesis is all about Joseph, what we finally, what we actually find out is that Joseph's story is really given to us as a means of contrast for Judah's story. This may be controversial and it may be even unsettling uh, of an interpretation of the next 14 chapters, but here's my quick summary of the rest of Genesis. God allows Joseph to suffer unjustly while sustaining him by grace so that, and that's a big so that, so that Judah might escape judgment and find grace. That is the entire purpose of the next 14 chapters of Genesis. And I know you've probably got a question. Would God really do this? Now, if you're Joseph, you don't want him to do this to you. But if you're Judah... This might be the message that you desperately need to hear. That God would do this to reach someone who was so far away, as far away as Judah. If you're just going by the story, absolutely yes, this is how God works. And actually, if we're going by his details and dealings with all of creation, since then, he still works this way. Maybe this isn't what you'd expect. Maybe you don't think this is fair, but it hasn't been fair since Eden. In fact, if you don't agree with his approach, you might actually be surprised to hear that Judah didn't agree with his approach either. It was very much contrary to the way he would do life. 
It was the very approach that saved his life, which is ironic. In fact, to make this even more amazing, what if I told you, what if I told you that the injustice that Joseph suffered was in part Judah's fault? What if I told you that Joseph's plight really was all because of Judah's spite? And all of a sudden you have this scenario, this scenario that doesn't make sense God winks at Judah's sin against Joseph, allowing Joseph to suffer while Judah walks free. Yes, as we'll find out, Judah doesn't walk free at all. He's entangled with guilt and fear and what begins as jealousy against his baby brother, his unrealistic relationship with God, soon becomes an opportunity to receive what he thought was too good to be true. So enough of an intro. Here's the setup. Joseph is as spoiled as you can get. He's, as ja- he's Jacob's favorite son from his favorite wife. You can imagine how that complicated that would be. His favorite son from a favorite wife and a family that is all about ex- receiving this exclusive blessing from a chosen one from son to son. You can imagine that there was quite a stir amongst the other 11 sons uh, of Jacob who had just been named Israel as Joseph, received, re- re- uh, Joseph seemed to already be the shoe-in for the blessing. So what was the rest of them working for? It's into that conversation that we enter. Genesis 37, verse 1 through 4, we'll get us started. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic or a coat of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not, be, could not speak peaceably to him. So when he received this coat of many colors, the rainbow, blessed the, the promise God made to Noah, you can see where this is going. They automatically think Joseph's already received the family birthright. He's already received the blessing. We're, we're just, you know, fighting for scraps. This isn't fair. That kid's a spoiled brat. I mean, he's half our age, makes twice the amount of money. He never sins. You know, we, you know we, he always wins. You know, we compare ourselves to him. We're never going to measure up. He's, you know, got a silver spoon in his mouth. Joseph starts having dreams on top of that, having dreams that he is indeed the next in line to be favored above the rest. He starts bragging about these dreams, and we almost get the picture. Joseph's kind of naive. He's not, kind of, he's not a, a bragger. He's not proud. He's just real naive, and he's been so sheltered. He doesn't think that people should be offended by this, but he goes around telling his brothers that one day y'all are going to serve me, and one day I'm going to be king, and y'all are going to be my servants, and I, everybody's going to love me, and I'm going to rule the world, and, and they just get so, over, you know, so aggravated and so fed up with his what they think is arrogance, but also just with how good he seems to have it. This all festers until one day Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers when they are grazing the highlands. Joseph loves surprising his brothers and bringing his father another disappointing report um, about their inferior and lackluster abilities. So he goes off to ruin their day, and this is where the story takes a very hard left turn. Look down at verse 18. Now when they saw him, Joseph, afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, look, the dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We we shall see what will become of his dreams then. So they're done with him. They're ready to kill him. 
Reuben, the oldest, heard it and delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And he didn't really save him. He just was trying to deliver him with his words. Reuben said, shed no blood, but cast him into the pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to the father. So Reuben was the oldest. He thought, you know what? I, I don't want to let my brother die. I'll have mercy for him, but I'll kind of do it on the, on the, you know, the, the sly. I'll come back later, but you know, we'll throw him in this pit and uh, maybe that'll pacify him, my brother. So even though he did want to save him, he didn't have too much problem throwing him down a pit. So I don't know if he was that good of a person or not. So verse 23, it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So they just decide, okay, we're not going to kill him, Reuben. You're right. We shouldn't kill him, but we're just going to throw him in this pit and let him starve to death and walk away from him. That'll, he'll still die, but we won't watch him die. And I can't help but laugh at verse 25. And they sat down to eat a meal. Now, this is why I believe the Bible is inspired, because why would you include that? I mean, that's God, and God sees fit to show the irony of them letting him starve in a pit, but they're too hungry. They can't even get back home before they've got to sit down and eat. But they sit down and eat, <laughs> going to let him starve. They worked up an appetite. But with Reuben having run off to bide some time, there's a power void in the group. Joseph, vulnerable and wounded in front of them, a cowardly lion sees an opportunity to seize on his prey. Verse 25 continues. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bringing spice, balm, and myrrh on the way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand not be uh, let our hand not be upon him for he is our brother and he is our flesh after all so Judah overwhelmed with mercy for his brother says we know what we could kill him but we can't make money off of that we could sell him into slavery and we walk away profiting off of it and he goes down to Egypt he'll never come back from there so Judah has this bright idea let's sell him and his brothers listened then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, and I where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Rubbing it in his face, right? Just completely. He recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. The wild beast has devoured him. Without a doubt, Joseph is torn into pieces. Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And they all knew what happened but they never told him they pretended to be as upset as him now Judah's biggest competition is out of the way he set his sight on establishing his own name in the land he broke away from his brothers much like his father had he would go on to pave his own path in his own way hopefully he would impress his father and would earn that family blessing that he wanted so badly 
So the story goes in Genesis 38 that Judah gets married and has three sons. We don't know the name of his wife, but we do, unfortunately, know the names that he gave his children. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, again, I'm not a Hebrew. I wasn't alive back then, but come on, Judah. I mean, Ur? Well, and it gets even worse, but we'll get to that. Tamar is married to Ur. Of course, uh, uh, God, God help her um, to, to, you know, be married to someone with an unfortunate name. But the story goes, that, and it goes into some very strange places. The scripture says that God kills Ur because he was full of Ur. Error. No, he was full of wickedness. That wasn't funny. Then the story goes that Tamar is given to Onan because of the custom that the son, brother, would marry his brother's wife if he were killed. God, uh, or Onan, marries Tamar, and the story goes that God kills Onan as well. And the scripture says that both Ur and Onan were killed because they were wicked. Shelah is too young to marry Tamar, but Judah is starting to get concerned. If he's going to be the heir and he only has one son left, this could mean trouble for him. Because he would never receive the family blessing if he didn't have a son to pass it on to himself. Judah obviously doesn't think his sons are the problem. He thinks Tamar is the problem. And he doesn't want to whatever curse she brought to his family to take his remaining son out. So Judah tells Tamar, you go home to your father. I'll support you in place of my son. When he's old enough, y'all can get married. But he has no intentions of fulfilling that promise. Judah never planned on seeing or hearing from Tamar again. He never planned on supporting her. But because of the laws of the land, Tamar was basically forbid to marry any other man and is at the mercy of Judah until someone in his family redeems her. And nobody could see how this story wraps up. Look over at chapter 38, verse 12. And this might be a little too much for church, but we're all friends here, so let's go for it. Verse 12, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to the sheep sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Sheep shearing uh, festivals were like Super Bowls. Everybody went to town. Everybody was celebrated. They would you know, tailgate and they would just party. It was just a great, uh, a great big festival. And it was told to, t- to Tam- Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, where a temple to a pagan god would have been. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. And that's where prostitutes would lay, would, would, would be in the, in the city. He turned to her, by the way, and said, please let me come into you. And he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come in? And he said, I will give you a young goat. I guess that was the going price for the thing back in the day. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? He said, hey, I don't have a goat. They're back home, but I'll send you one later. She said, no, 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 no. You better give me something to be, uh, uh, you know, to make good for this arrangement. So he gives her essentially his social security card and his driver's license his signet ring and a cord, which would, be, which would represent his identity, his staff that was all a part of his identity. So he gives her his ring, he gives her his staff. Then, it, then they went together, and verse 18 says, she conceived by him. She arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. 
And he asked the man of the place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no one there. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest she be ashamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And then it came to pass, about three months after, that Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by her harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned for bringing shame to the sacred name and family of the chosen one, Judah. This true cowardness of self-righteousness is revealed in the story. Much like his behavior toward Joseph, Judah is continually trying to build his own self up at the expense of others. And our nature does this. If we're not careful, if we're trying to prove our worth, we'll assert our alleged superiority over and against others. We'll build a straw man just to have someone to contrast ourselves to. But we must be aware of the trap of self-righteousness which is driven by our own fear and our own insecurities. Because over and over again, we will overcompensate in our judgment toward others in efforts to project our own higher righteousness. Isn't it true that we are often, the people that are so judgy of others often have the biggest secrets to hide? The people that are so judgmental and so better than everyone else are hiding something bigger than everyone else. We don't feel any better when we do this. We definitely aren't any better for it. Now, at this point in the story, you'd think Judah is a lost cause, or maybe he'll finally be found out for being a fraud. Well, he does get found out. But rather than turning the fire back on him, God steps in to send a remarkable message. Listen to how this concludes. Verse 25, When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, the ring and the staff, I am with child. And she said, Please, could you tell me whose signet whose cord and whose staff these are so at that point judah says okay guys can we just break up can we just can, can we just end this i've got to work a deal out i got to talk to her i got to have a private conversation we're going to call off the burning we're going to call off the witch you know the, the murder here y'all go back home party's over nobody's getting burned today judah privately falls on his face before tamar Acknowledge that those were his. And listen to this statement. She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. He never knew her again. They departed, but the story doesn't end. Came to pass at the time of her giving birth, the behold, twins were in her womb. So it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back the hand, his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name is Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand. His name was Zerah. Now, you might not really understand the, the, the ramifications of the, the way this story ends, but I wanna just kind of wrap up on this conversation. The scarlet thread. The scarlet thread can be seen at any point in every one of our stories. 
Here's the beauty of the Bible. If you've got a Bible like mine, maybe you've got a scarlet thread attached to your Bible. Anywhere you bring that thread over the page, on any page, on any chapter, you can shut that book and remember that that thread is there for every person in every story. That thread is written for, is there for sinners just like us, just like Judah. Judah's story doesn't end here, of course. To, that, to tell that story, Genesis shifts back to Joseph. Let me summarize it the best I can. Joseph's taken into slavery in Egypt. Eventually, he ends up in prison because of false accusations against him. For 13 years, he's left alone in a cell, rotting away. A series of fortuitous events lead him to being out of prison. He comes before Pharaoh to interpret some of Pharaoh's dreams. Eventually, he makes it onto Pharaoh's board of advisors. And ultimately, he becomes the right-hand man of Pharaoh, the prime minister of Egypt. As fate would have it, a famine sweeps over the Middle East. And because of Joseph's leadership, Egypt is the only nation prepared for the crisis. This leads to every nation in the world turning to Egypt for relief. And of course, that includes the fledgling nation of Israel. Judah and his brothers pack up a caravan and go stand in line in Egypt and find themselves in Joseph's presence, unaware that Joseph is their brother because he looks like and he sounds like and he walks like an Egyptian. 20 years later at this point. It's a remarkable story wherein Joseph is overwhelmed at the sight of his brothers, yet he isn't compelled to pay them back. Suddenly it dawns on him that I was sent to Egypt to be here for my brothers. Can you imagine how somebody would, someone would, would think that? He doesn't get angry at them. He thanks God that God sent him there ahead of time to be sure that his family would not starve during the famine. Joseph, the way he sees the world, and it's so weird because no one sees the world like him. He says, God sent me here to get me ahead of time, preparing 20 years for this famine so that my family wouldn't starve. And he leaves the room and he rejoices and he weeps at what God has done. He inquires about his brothers. He is overjoyed to hear that his father is still alive and he hears that his baby brother Benjamin is now a young man. Joseph gives his brothers relief, but he toys with them. He smuggles the money they paid back into their bags upon their first visit. And when they get home, they're overwhelmed with guilt because they think that the money was put back in their bags to set them up. And they think that God's finally going to get them for what they did to their brother all those years before. And Judah thinks God's finally going to get him for all the stuff he's done wrong. They go back for another trip to get some more grain from Egypt. And Joseph has thrown a big party for them. They brought Benjamin with them this time and they're wondering why is Joseph going to have a party with us and he has this big feast and he can't, they, you know, they can't even speak the same language and they're all having this big feast, they're all eating and they're thinking why is this guy want to eat lunch with us? And Joseph is just weeping the whole time and they don't understand why is he so happy? Why does he like us? Finally he lets them all go but he put his royal goblet in Benjamin's bag and he sets his brothers up to be caught. So the story concludes with Joseph toying with them once again, threatening to keep Benjamin a prisoner, but willing to free the rest. And as they head in to hear what Joseph will do to them, all the brothers are feeling is hopelessness. Potentially their nation and God's future plan for the world is on the line. They need a leader. And in that moment, an unlikely hero steps up to the plate. Our time will close in Genesis 44. If you'll look over there at verse number 14. Genesis 44, verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Did you not know that such a man as I can practice divination with a cup like that because of how the Egyptians 
were with their religion. Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. So Judah thinks that this is all set up by God to get him back, to finally pay him for his sin. He said, far be it for me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace. So Joseph says, no, I just want Benjamin. Y'all can go home. And, and Judah says, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't go home without Benjamin. After Joseph died, he's been our father's favorite. We can't go home. Judah comes near to him and said, oh, Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. Do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you even are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, have you a father or a brother? And we said to you, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he is left alone of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we did that. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So we brought Benjamin with us because you, for some reason, wanted to meet our other brother. And we can't go home without Benjamin because if we go home without Benjamin, we'll break our father's heart even more. And you don't understand, man, I know you don't know me, but I have been such a wretch. I have made such a mess. I can't disappoint my father again. At this point in the story, Joseph should have said, Judah, what's going on? Why are you so guilty? He's so guilt-ridden, he's so afraid that judgment is just around the corner. Finally, he sees that this must be getting him back for what he's deserved. And this is so big. Maybe it doesn't hit y'all like it hits me, but this is so, so big. In this moment, the fallen, wounded lion confesses his cowardice and confronts his fears. He had nothing to lose. He had burned every bridge, ruined every chance he ever had or would have. So Judah does something that takes tremendous amount of courage for someone who's overwhelmed by guilt and grief. He throws himself on the fire for the sake of his family. In this moment, he's not trying to win or earn anything for himself. He's simply accepting that he doesn't deserve anything and attempting to save his father from more agony and his brothers from suffering at his expense once more. Listen to what Judah says down in verse 30. Therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. So Judah says, hey, I can't go back without Benjamin. So here's the deal. For your servant, myself, will become a surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. So what does Judah say? Keep me. Do whatever you want to do with me. Just don't take Benjamin. I already ruined enough people's lives. Just take Benjamin mine i've spent all my years trying to knock down others to exalt myself but all i've ever really done is try to hide who i really am judah the cowardly lion in this moment he takes off his mask he removes his mane and there he is the sinner he had hidden that everyone always knew he was 
the one responsible for selling Joseph, cast himself at the mercy of Joseph. At this point, Joseph is completely overwhelmed. A normal person would seize this opportunity for revenge, but Joseph wasn't normal. He has everybody leave the room except for his brothers, and he weeps in front of them. He takes off his crown, he rubs off the makeup, and there they see their baby brother, all grown up, the king of the world. They're speechless and dismayed, but Joseph descends the throne and embraces every one of them, reveals he already had plans to bring them and their whole family to the land that they might take refuge in the plague. The brothers go and get Jacob and bring him down to live his last days out with the sons. And they don't understand how this could ever happen, but Joseph assures them over and over and over again, I have forgiven you. God sent me here just for y'all. At the end of Jacob's life, as he's living his last few days out, the time comes to pass the blessing on to the next end of the line. The promise of building a nation, only one of the sons would be the royal tribe that would bring the Messiah. And it's almost a foregone conclusion at this point. It's going to be Joseph, isn't it? And they all get ready for the ceremony, and Joseph, for some reason, is at the back of the line because he doesn't suspect he's going to get picked. I don't know. Reuben's first in line. He's the oldest. Levi and Simeon are the next in line. But as Jacob begins to read off the blessings. He goes by Reuben, he goes by his Levi, and he goes by Simon, and he doesn't give them the blessing. He doesn't give them the family birthright. And then he says Judah's name. And the only, the only time in the story, he has to say Judah's name twice because Judah can't believe it. Judah, a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone down. You stoop down and you crouch to the lion. You've lived your whole life trying to pounce on people, trying to take advantage of people, trying to twist things to be the way you need them to be. And that's why I'm picking you to bear the family birthright. What? Isn't that a reason to not pick Judah? Of course, that's how this story has gone, hasn't it? So to you, Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of all people. It doesn't make any sense. It's unbelievable at this point in the story. It's absolutely believable because that's just how our God has proven to be, isn't it? Going farther for this than we, for us, than we could ever or would go for him. In this story, we see Joseph sort of characterize God, what God was willing to do in order to create a place of refuge for his own. Joseph would say to a still doubting Judah years later, do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God, even though he kind of was? He says to Judah at the end of the story, as for you, you meant evil against me. Listen, buddy, you didn't just accidentally do this to me. You intentionally did this to me. But listen here, God meant this for good to bring about that many people would be saved isn't that incredible the story of judah reminds us all that we don't have to try to earn god's approval we have it we don't have to be afraid of god we have his favor why not because we deserve it 
Because God is so much better than we could ever imagine him to be. Even if our past may suggest we've walked away from God, the scarlet thread reveals otherwise. That we've actually been walking to him this whole time. This table is proof. The gospel is proof. Christmas is proof. I got one more thing to show you before we're done. In Matthew's gospel, his story, of course, begins with Christmas, and that story begins with Jesus' lineage. And notice the special shout-out that Matthew gives. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And it's from their lineage that God brought a savior into the world. Matthew pulls down that scarlet thread to remind us and to remind you and me that Christmas is all about, the gospel is all about how God sent a savior into the world to find every lost child, to raise up every fallen son and daughter, to confront every cowardly lion, wounded and in rebellion, to restore them to their place at God's side, to release us from guilt, to release us from shame, release us from fear, to show us a better way than self-righteousness, to give us his own righteousness. That's the promise of Christmas. May we never accept or believe otherwise. Just as we don't fear, but rather rejoice at what Christmas is all about, we can also look forward to that coming day where Christ will return, not to judge or condemn, but to fulfill his promise to us, to bring us into this presence, to restore our world from its fallen and former glory. This Advent season, we anticipate him without any fear or dread. And as scripture commands, as we gather around the table to eat this bread and drink, this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that God has brought favor unto us, even though we could not and never will deserve it.